From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. And then, the unreality unraveled. This was the week when Donald Trump's reflex to fabricate, conceal, attack, and deny finally overwhelmed his own White House. The firing of FBI Director James Comey, premised on a transparent lie about Hillary Clinton's emails, forced presidential surrogates into an elaborate but flimsy fiction. Vice President Mike Pence. We have a president who's willing to provide the kind of decisive and strong leadership to take the recommendation of the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General to remove an FBI director. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer with ABC's Jonathan Carl. Sean Spicer insisted the president fired Comey solely because of the recommendation of Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein and the Justice Department. So the White House had no involvement in this decision, in this decision to write this letter by the Deputy Attorney General. That's correct. Here's Spicer again, cornered by the press as he literally took refuge in the West Wing hedges. The president made the decision today? Yes. That statement was swiftly inoperative. They, because in your letter you said, I, I accepted, accepted their recommendation. Yeah, well, so you also, had already made the decision. Oh, I, I was going to fire regardless of recommendation. So there was, it wasn't the Justice Department's recommendation. It was Comey's grandstanding. Yeah, that's the ticket. Grandstanding. He's a showboat. He's a grandstander. The FBI has been in turmoil. You know that. I know that. Everybody knows that. Throughout the week, a kaleidoscope of justification. It was the emails. It was the deputy attorney general. It was Comey's congressional testimony. It was his loss of trust within the FBI. It wasn't about Russia. It definitely wasn't about Russia. Deputy Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders. There's nothing there. It's time to move on. And it's frankly, it's time to focus on the things that the American people care about. Except that one person turns out to really care a lot about Russia. When I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election. With Trump under siege over to coin a phrase, a third-rate election hacking, comparisons to Watergate were everywhere, notably on the matter of obstruction of justice, the first article of impeachment that did, in fact, undo the presidency of Richard M. Nixon. Thus ended what John Dean famously diagnosed as a diseased administration. We have a cancer within close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. It's compounded, it grows geometrically now because it compounds itself. Whatever may be facing the Trump administration, it cannot get its story straight. A problem which can be addressed in two ways. One is for the president and his retinue to simply tell the truth. This is altogether unlikely for a White House press office that from literally day one has been little more than an alibi machine and a very bad one at that. Then there is Trump's idea. Then this morning, President Trump tweeting, defending his staff and threatening to cancel all press conferences. He says, as a very active president with lots of things happening, it's not possible for my surrogates to stand at podium with perfect accuracy. Maybe the best thing to do would be to cancel all future press briefings and hand out written responses for the sake of accuracy. Yes, Donald Trump's fix for not lying to the press is to stop answering questions altogether. And here we enter a reality more surreal than any in the history of our republic. 
Yes, John Dean's words resonate, but the diagnosis? Not quite. Not cancer. Rather, there is a dementia on this presidency, characterized by memory lapses, personality changes, impaired reasoning, paranoia, and spontaneous eruptions, not just from within the Oval Office, but the entire administration. On Friday afternoon, Sean Spicer wondered aloud why the White House's words aren't accepted as gospel. I think he's a little dismayed, as well as a lot of people, that uh, we come out here and try to do everything we can to provide you and the American people with what he's doing on their behalf. And yet we see time and time again an attempt to parse every little word and, and make it more of a game of gotcha, as opposed to really figure out what the policies are, why, why something's being pursued, or what the update is on this. Dismay at the whole world for not accepting their lives as truth. Here's the real problem. For this disorder, there is no cure. With all the comparisons to the Saturday Night Massacre swirling about, one factor is decidedly different, the media landscape. Back in 1973, the media were almost universally critical of President Nixon. There was no right-wing media apparatus, at least not beyond the editorial pages. Today, we have Fox News and Breitbart and Daily Caller and Drudge to jump to the president's defense. And thanks to a recent change to FCC rules, our right-wing media juggernaut seems poised to grow even stronger. On Monday, the conservative-leaning Sinclair Media put in a bid for $3.9 billion to buy Tribune Media, a purchase that would make Sinclair the largest TV broadcasting company in the country. Paul Fari has been covering the Sinclair bid for the Washington Post. He says the media giant had humble beginnings. Sinclair was founded by a fellow named Julian Sinclair Smith, and he had four sons. And his four sons are now the controlling shareholders of this company, which started with, I believe, two small UHF stations in the Baltimore area. They have grown by a series of deals, particularly since 1996 when Congress passed the deregulation law, which expanded the number of stations that broadcasters could own. Sinclair owns, I believe the number now is 173 stations. And most of those stations are in small to middle-sized markets. They don't own a lot of big city stations. The interesting part of the Tribune deal is that they would leap into the top 10 markets, Los Angeles, New York, Dallas, Chicago. They would acquire 42 more stations and give it enormous media power in the country. You can own the stations, and you can have a kind of, I guess, corporate philosophy. And then there is proactively controlling the content on any given news broadcast, let's just say at 5 p.m. in Los Angeles. The many dozens and dozens of Sinclair stations produce their own news, and most of it is local, and most of it is straight up and pretty solid. They win awards. They do all the things that every other news organization does. What Sinclair has done with these many, many stations is they will occasionally order something called a must-run story, one that must run on all of the stations ordered to run it. So during the campaign, they ran stories that were about Donald Trump's reminiscences of 9-11, stories about women campaigning for Donald Trump. 
and more critical stories about Hillary Clinton. Historically, how pushy has the corporation been about making sure that its politics are represented on its news shows? Let's go back to 2004 when Sinclair got a lot of criticism from Democrats about a plan to air a documentary that was going to take on the Vietnam War service of candidate John Kerry. It was produced by one of the offshoots of the Swift Boat Group, which was an overtly partisan outfit. And so it was hard to justify on a simply journalistic basis. Democrats complained, as I mentioned, and they backed down from doing it. Fast forward to 2012, Sinclair had a documentary that ran on many of its stations that was very critical of President Obama in his re-election campaign. There was no equivalent documentary about Mitt Romney at the time. 2016 campaign, the many Sinclair stations around the country did numerous interviews, dozens and dozens, with Trump and his surrogates. There was no equivalent series of interviews with Hillary Clinton and her surrogates. Wasn't there a quid pro quo with the Trump campaign for access? You give us access and you can be sure that you're going to get some sort of easy ride? Jared Kushner, in a speech to a business group in New York, said as much, but Sinclair itself denied that there was any such deal in place. They said it was all straight up. We come to the Trump campaign and say we are the local TV newscasters in the various cities he's campaigning in. Please come and give us interviews. Now, I will say it's kind of curious that the Sinclair stations repeatedly got access to Trump when other stations in the market, very eager to interview Trump and his surrogates, were not able to get that access. So what we're looking at is one company with a history of partisan activism that is going to be in 74% of the U.S. broadcast markets offering local news coverage if this goes through. Interestingly, one of the political connections of the Smith family, and particularly David Smith, the former CEO, is Ben Carson. Ben Carson was a neurosurgeon in the Baltimore area and became friendly with the Smith family, and particularly David Smith. And they've been kind of a sponsor in some ways of Ben Carson's political career. They put him on these panels on TV, and they quoted him extensively. The Sinclair stations were the venue for Ben Carson's campaign announcement back in 2015. And Sinclair has a number of stations in the swing states, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, crucial to the last election. So their power is magnified by the fact that they can reach the most critical voters in those states. That's not the only thing. What, as recently as 10 years ago, was a kind of crummy and declining asset, local TV stations, suddenly are cash cows because of the influx of political spending without limit under Citizens United. This is quite the triple play, not the one the cable companies are trying to sell you on, but a relaxation and media concentration to acquire stations in a hitherto unpermissible percentage of the marketplace fueled by cash permitted by a conservative Supreme Court decision. Yes, all of the above. 
the thing about the local TV station market is it's very cyclical. But one of the up cycles every two years is political advertising. And if you have a station in those swing states where the presidential campaigns are pouring money in, you have a golden goose. And that's one of the things that is driving Sinclair to acquire some of these stations. So what is your best guess? Is this the biggest block of the right-wing media fortress that is going to now finally stifle straightforward news coverage in this country? Or is it just one more channel in an overall media environment that is just so infinitely large that the effect might be quite muted? Local news is often thought of as the most trustworthy kind of news available to people. That's because it's local. People can see people they know on the air. They can see familiar anchors giving them the news. It's more or less news from down the street. So it has that influence. But remember, you're in an environment where there's lots and lots of competition. It's not the only thing on the air. The question for a public debate is, do we want to hand one company this kind of influence? Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. Paul Fari is a media reporter for The Washington Post. Coming up, do we need a new language to cover this presidency? The arguments for and against. This is on the media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. So we have seen once again that the White House cannot stick to a story. Because there is no unitary White House. There are a bunch of senior officials and spokespeople, and then there's Trump. And yet we, the media, still reach for that trusty phrase. The White House says today's move... The White House says it's confident that House... The White House says the commission will be tasked with investigating voter fraud. For the mainstream media, White House coverage calls for neutral White House language, no matter who resides therein. But perhaps the old lexicon just can't apply to this new kind of presidency. For instance, see if you can spot an outdated phrase in this clip. But first, we take a look at the foreign policy accomplishments and setbacks during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. That was Judy Woodruff of PBS NewsHour with a perfectly normal intro into the night's news. Jay Rosen, NYU journalism professor and author of the Press Think blog, says that normal is the problem. Jay, welcome back to OTM. Thank you so much, Brick. So, foreign policy accomplishments and setbacks seems pretty innocuous, but you cringed at it. I did, because the word policy connotes 
a position that reflects convictions. And I don't think his positions came out of any deep reflection. And I also don't think he holds very fast to them. He just says stuff. So this habitual language, which seems pretty harmless and standard and routine, is actually deceptive. I don't think Donald Trump has any deep thoughts or even superficial thoughts about America's role in the world. He has thoughts about Donald Trump's role in the Trump saga. Recently, we spoke a little bit about the terminology around covering his tax proposal, so to speak, that Mm -hmm. calling it tax reform is clearly not accurate. But you're saying calling it a tax plan at all is also inaccurate. I like Andrew Sorkin's description. He said this belongs on a cocktail napkin. And if you listen carefully to his interview with John Dickerson, it was pretty clear he didn't understand the weight of what he was saying. It's not just that he didn't know the details. He didn't know the outline. (laughs) And that embarrasses us so much, including the journalists who have to report on it, that I think they change it into something that's a little bit more acceptable. For instance, last month, the New York Times headline stated that a steep learning curve leads to policy reversals. Mm. I noticed this tendency among journalists to use this word learning to mean not necessarily an education, but a discovery. So they'll say, he's learning that it's not so easy to manipulate Congress, or he's learning that the president has restraints on his powers, right? And it's true that events are showing him that. But that's different than learning, (laughs) because when you learn, you change your behavior, and we don't see that. You even get a little bugged when you read in a newspaper that the White House said, or according to the White House. Yes. The people who speak for the president can't speak for the president because they actually have no idea what he meant and can't explain what he just proclaimed. Then the whole idea that there is a White House apparatus— falls apart. And yet, to refer to the White House automatically is like one of the most natural reflexes there is in White House reporting. Which brings us to the big question that you address in your series of tweets about this language, that there is a way that we report on the White House. There is a lexicon. And what's the harm in applying it to Trump? The harm is simply being inaccurate. Another point here is that you can't sit around and invent a new language if you have a deadline in 30 minutes. You have to reach for what you already have. It has to be routinized. But in the routinization of language, there's also the routinization of thought. And that is what's becoming problematic. The difference between this White House and all previous White Houses in the modern era is extreme. So what would a more accurate language say? Judy Woodruff could simply say, does Donald Trump even have a foreign policy? We'll tackle that next. Now, you didn't mention the other value of having a standard language. It insulates you from charges of bias. True. I think it's really important for journalists to come to grips with an uncomfortable fact that sometimes their duty to accuracy and truthful description is in conflict with their wish to avoid criticism. And if they recognized the conflict more, thought about it more carefully, they might make better choices. 
Now, within the confines of normal news language, you believe there are still better ways to communicate the reality of the political moment. And you point to Chuck Todd's analysis. Let's hear a little of that. It seems like if any other president said there was a chance of a major, major conflict with a nuclear power, there'd be wall-to-wall coverage, special reports. My colleague Lester Holt would already be flying to Seoul. But let's face it, we've been conditioned to discount the president's words already. And that's a big deal, too. He pointed out there are consequences to Trump's way of talking. We're already starting to discount what the president says as probably unreliable. And that is an amazing thing because we've always tried to see through the president's spin. and All presidents lie. All presidents lie and they propagandize us. But I don't think we've ever been in a situation where it makes more sense to assume that what the president says is based on zero knowledge or that is false or crazy. So how do White House reporters deal with this situation? Journalists think of themselves as professional skeptics. But they haven't looked at their own language and seen how it's too optimistic. It's too credulous. We're in an extreme situation here where the president is demonstrating that he's unprepared for the job. Journalists have to realize that they're being called to an even deeper skepticism. They have to go back to an identity they all have, which is writers picking the words that fit the situation, not just plugging in prefab concepts. Return to their roots as wordsmiths to cope with a new reality. You suggest in a post on PressThink that they also need to guard themselves against manipulation. You were criticizing an article by Politico about the playground that is really the Trump administration's relationship with the press. As you were going through the Politico piece, you pulled out this quote from a reporter who said, If you're doing anything involving any sort of palace intrigue, they are crazy cooperative. But if you have any sort of legitimate question, if you need a yes or no answer on policy, they're impossible. What is the reason we have these reporters in the White House? It's to enable the public to understand what the people in power are doing. And that cannot happen if the people in power don't speak truthfully and let us in on their plans. Do any of these juicy stories about palace intrigue and infighting in the White House help us understand what the people in power plan to do? That's the question. And the fact that the White House press is having a ball because they have so many sources dishing dirt on one another and he cares deeply about how he's portrayed on CNN doesn't matter that much in the larger politics of this, which is an attempt to break off part of the public and keep it within an information loop that the mainstream media doesn't even enter. If you look at a Gallup poll that you have in your post, you can see that in 2015, Democrats trusted the press by about 51 percent and Republicans by only 14 percent. So when he hates on the press, he's doing it for the benefit of his base. And part of his purpose there is to make sure that the news source they accept about Trump is Trump. If the press can't find a way into that circle, then it really doesn't matter what a ball they're having as they report on this playground of a White House. Jay, thank you very much. You are so welcome. 
Jay Rosen teaches journalism at NYU and writes the blog Press Think. So do reporters under pressure simply reach reflexively for familiar frames and phrases? For some perspective, we called Glenn Thrush, White House correspondent for The New York Times, who faces deadlines daily and whose reporting, with colleague Maggie Haberman, has shed much light on an administration in chaos. The truth of the matter is, despite their public hostility and the president's own pronouncements, these people are fairly accessible. You know, the issue here, however, isn't so much about their output, but about their internal difficulties. And it's the disorganization, more than any sort of organized effort to oppose us, that really is day-to-day one of the bigger challenges that we face. Right. You know, Politico observed that, quote, the great secret of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is that Trump's war on the media is a phony one that keeps his supporters fired up and distracted while he woos the constituency that really matters to him, journalists. I think we tend to want to compartmentalize uh, things, discern whether his motive is premeditated on something or if it's visceral. The truth of the matter is, with Donald Trump, the lines are blurred. His relationship with the press, more than anything else, exemplifies that blurring. This is a guy who I think imputes sort of a moral character to reporters. If they are saying nice things about him, he thinks they are morally good. If they are saying negative things, he thinks they are immoral. And at the same time, he's intensely transactional. So the same reporter that he can be browbeating in a public context, he'll be talking to off the record. So yes, I agree with the fundamental premise that there is a fake element to it, but it all is of a piece with Donald Trump. It's not so much fake as it is on the continuum of communication. Well, this is why Jay Rosen says that journalists need to develop a new lexicon. Journalists, he said, tend to reach for a trusty anodyne phrase like foreign policy to describe what Trump is doing, when in fact, it's clear that this president hasn't actually got a policy. So do you think the media need to start using different vocabulary to present the most accurate picture of what's going on in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Meh. Meh? (laughs) Why meh? There's a big difference between saying that Donald Trump has a coherent foreign policy versus Donald Trump has a foreign policy that's cobbled together and in a lot of instances borrowed from the staff he empowers, for instance. I mean, there is no more powerful person in this government than Defense Secretary Mattis. No, but I think you have to use these frames. You have to keep him to a standard in which he can be measured against other presidents. Now, I do agree with Jay that you can't allow President Trump to cloak himself in the dignified vestments of the presidency, therefore lending a coherence to his policies that really aren't there. But I think he needs to be judged on the same scale that we judge uh, everyone else before him. And if we change our language, then we change our measurement. Okay. I think that's a great argument. I wonder if it's a little too facile, though. You mentioned James Mattis, for instance. Trump ordered, when he first got there, a plan for dealing with ISIS. Mattis delivered one. People in his office say, as far as they can tell, Trump has never looked at it. If there isn't a policy or even an effort to create one, haven't you already, in choosing the word policy, 
created an impression that such a thing exists, good, bad, or otherwise? Listen, we're in a show don't tell business here. And, and what you just presented me with was a fact. When you have a fact set that demonstrates that the president doesn't have knowledge or the intellectual curiosity to read a plan that could determine the course of American foreign policy and the fate of American service members, that is news. And obviously how you describe that is important, but it is the fact that leads the analysis. The problem that I have in general, and this is not a rap on Jay Rosen, who I think makes some exceptionally good points, is that when you read sort of the Twitter traffic on our reporting, people get hung up on our characterizations of things. We are far more focused on trying to unearth fact. Yes, our language, particularly when we are first confronted with a new phenomenon, can be pretty imprecise and sometimes could be misleading. But everything that we do in terms of covering this administration or any other administration is a process of trying to develop to steal Jay's language here, a vocabulary on how to describe things. But that vocabulary is determined by fact, and I think it's very important that we focus on the show end of this and not the tell. Okay. Let me throw another one of his phrases at you anyway. Yeah, great. I love this, by the way. (laughs) The White House said, he says that very phrase is misleading because it suggests that this administration, like its predecessors, has a unified message. But you know better than anybody else that what you hear depends on who you ask. I agree with him 100%. I taught journalism. You never impute a statement to a, <laughs> an entity that does not have a beating heart or a pulsing brain. <laughs> it's why the passive voice, by the way, is particularly inappropriate for this White House because almost everything from the firing of James Comey on down derives from the actions and decisions of one person. I mean, he says it. That's the way he wants to run his White House. We are right now in a very subject, verb, object kind of <laughs> environment. And, and more often than not, the subject is the proper noun Donald Trump. He's been looking to get rid of Comey for weeks, watching television and fuming over Comey. People refer this under the broad rubric of palace intrigue. But the truth of the matter is what you've just described, the fact that the White House doesn't speak with a single voice, necessitates us identifying each individual power player inside this White House, what their position is, where their influence is at any given time. It's very important. You anticipated me by defending the reporting of palace intrigue. The Politico story that I keep referring to quotes uh, several White House reporters, not by name, saying that the Trump team is much more cooperative about palace intrigue stories than they are on actual policy. Shouldn't that be a red flag? Oh, it's more than that. I mean, the reason why this White House has so many palace intrigue stories is because Donald Trump wants those stories out there. The more we're talking about Jared Kushner versus Steve Bannon, the more we're talking about, and I just did a story with Maggie on Chief of Staff Priebus and how weak he is and what conflicts he's involved in. The more you write those stories, the more... Our attention is focused there rather than on, say... Nope. Nope. Depends on how you write the story, Brooke. Every single profile that you write in Washington, D.C. is derivative of the president of the United States. Anything you write about the White House, a staffer, is a mini mirror on the president. And if you write your story without an understanding that the only reason that you are writing it is so that your readers can have a better understanding of the way the power flows from the president on down then you're making a mistake. Everything, everything we write 
at least this is an, an attempt on our part, we're not always successful, is about telling our readers how this guy governs. So when we write about Priebus, I'm not writing about Priebus. I'm writing about the fact that President Trump has chosen a weak chief of staff who he has not empowered to make decisions because this is the way he has chosen to run his government, because he's comfortable with internal dissent and he feels threatened by any individual whom he deems is too powerful. That's not a palace intrigue story. That's a story that tells you a lot about Donald Trump. Let me get to another example and have you explain its importance in the same way. Last month, you and uh, Maggie Haberman sat down with the president for a 20-minute Oval Office interview. You were supposed to talk about infrastructure spending. Immediately, he started lobbing charges against Susan Rice. It's a massive, massive story all over the world. I mean, other than the New York Times. We've written about it twice. Huh? We've written about it twice. Yeah, it's a bigger story than you know. Uh, I think, you mean there's more information that we're not aware of? I, I think it's going to be the biggest story. In situations like that, how do you keep him on topic? Or sometimes, is it in your best interest not to do that? The answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is what critics tend to miss about what we do. You know, we're, we're former tabloid reporters from New York. We went in with a very broadsheet mentality to discuss infrastructure. He knows we're tabloid folks, and he knows he can make news anytime. I was annoyed personally by the fact that he chose to use the interview to kind of go off on Susan Rice. We had to report it. Trump told the New York Times on Wednesday he thinks Rice broke the law by requesting to unmask Trump campaign officials. New evidence-free allegation from President Trump. He told the New York Times that he thinks Susan Rice committed a crime. It was in the middle of a news cycle. We couldn't have buried it. That's not our function. That is why he is so effective. He understands the fact that we have a dual function to break news, to get scoops, and to provide insight. We'd prefer to have those two halves of our being fused seamlessly together. Donald Trump, and this is his, his genius, understands how to cut us in half. He gets between us and our imperative. That is a very, very sophisticated thing that he does. How do you combat that? You don't invest too much in any one day or any one story. You have to view yourself as telling a story over a longer period of time, and you have to view each day as a different day where you are building upon the lessons uh, and mistakes, frankly, that you've made so that you can cover him in a more meaningful way. And it's a very complicated endeavor, and you have to start with an idea of how you want to cover him. You can't allow him to determine what you are going to do or be. I'm really interested in your saying, you know, he gets between your dual roles here. I just think that the biggest threat from this administration is that he fills the ether with so much noise that the forest gets lost in the trees, to use that cliche. People don't know how to respond when he suggests he might be willing to bomb North Korea. For any other president, that would be front page headlines all the time. The fact that his son-in-law's sister can go and basically sell indulgences in China, all of this stuff, week after week, the wholesale violation of norms on a constant basis seems to bring the whole idea of accountability crashing down on our heads. You see, I think the frustration isn't necessarily with Trump that people have. The frustration is the reaction that a certain portion of the population has to Donald Trump, right? I mean, 
probably the most significant thing that he said during the campaign was, and I'm paraphrasing broadly here, so I can go into the middle of Fifth Avenue, Manhattan. And shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. The frustration is that there's a significant portion of the population that doesn't care, frankly, about him violating those norms. And there is a fairly large portion of the population, probably a majority of Americans, who are disgusted by some of the things that he does. The problem is we just have two different sets of standards and a wall between those two. And really, one of the statistics in the last couple of weeks that White House people have been spewing back at us when we point out that his approval rating is the lowest in history for a president at this point in his presidency is that he's retained 96% of his voters from 2016. There are not a pool of persuadables, people who are receptive to some of these criticisms and news stories about him at this point. So those of us who write stories that are not positive towards him, and you know, we don't set out to do that, but that's often what we do. We're speaking to an audience that largely wants to hear negative things about Donald Trump and Fox and Friends <laughs> and, and Breitbart and The Daily Caller. They're speaking to an audience that wants to hear positive things about the president. We're essentially two battleships firing at each other with a very small cohort of people in between. So if there is a wall between these two groups, the unpersuadables and those who are disgusted, how do you breach it? Is there a strategy for breaching it? And do you see that as part of your role? Oh, I, I see that as my central role. And I also see that as my biggest frustration. I can't. Look, I'm different than a lot of White House reporters. A lot of White House reporters come out of foreign policy. Some of them have had foreign postings. I covered poverty in New York. I covered child welfare and education, homelessness in New York, and housing particularly. So I come from an environment where you can write stories about atrocious living conditions for people, heart-rending stories, and people's opinions are so set on these issues that you're not going to change any minds. I feel as if that dynamic is now exploded nationally and that you just have these entrenched mindsets. I don't know what's going to change it. And, and I think the question that you asked there, I think it's the central question of our time because this is unsustainable. This is not really the way this is supposed to work, and I just don't. I just don't know what is going to break the logjam, but I have faith eventually because I lived through 9-11, I've lived through the recession, I've lived through various crises. I tend to think we come together again, but at the moment I can't quite see how. Glenn, thank you very much. Thank you. Glenn Thrush is chief White House political correspondent for The New York Times. Coming up, finding solutions. Really? This is On the Media. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science. Neuroscience, chemistry. But, but, we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing. Or politics. Country music. Hockey. Sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. And I'm Brooke Gladstone. As Glenn Thrush observed, the journalistic landscape is strewn with scoops both tasty and nutritious. And yet they only seem to entrench division. So what to do? 
One possible solution, says Tina Rosenberg, who co-writes the Fixes column for The New York Times, is for reporters to reframe the coverage of the nation's woes. She's founder of the Solutions Journalism Network, an initiative that works with newsrooms to develop stories that present seemingly intractable problems in the context of what's being tried to fix them. She didn't start out with that idea. Initially, it was a strategy she used to get her pieces into print. I have always written about really depressing subjects. They're what interests me. They don't always happen to be what interests readers, unfortunately. Like what? Oh, human rights in Latin America, public health issues, torture, poverty, homelessness. Bummers. So back in 2000, I wanted to write a story for the Sunday magazine of the New York Times. I thought it was a great story. It was about the price of AIDS drugs in poor countries and the fact that in the countries where the AIDS burden was the highest, the prices of the drugs were the highest, which ensured basically nobody could get them. So what was a manageable chronic disease in rich countries was still a death sentence in most of the world. The reason that was happening was that the pharmaceutical industry, with backing from the Clinton administration, was putting political pressure on countries not to make or buy generic drugs. So I wanted to do that story, and my editor said, it's too depressing. We can't inflict another 7,000-word story on our readers about how everybody's going to die in Malawi. So I went back and reframed the story. There was one country that was making generics, basically telling the Clinton administration and Big Pharma, go away. We don't care what you do. We're not giving into that. And providing them for free to all its people, and that was Brazil. So the story became, how was Brazil able to do this? And in the course of telling that story, I could say everything I wanted to say about how badly Big Pharma and Washington were behaving. So it was still the investigative story, but it was wrapped in a frame that made it much more powerful. It gave people a sense of hope that there was a way out. It made the accountability factor stronger because it took away the excuses of other places that weren't doing this. And I realized that this was a great way to approach stories that my editors would dismiss as, oh, that's too depressing. Now, your editor was talking essentially about compassion fatigue. You can keep hammering people over the head, but those emotions strained and strained will gradually die. So this was a way to combat that. But it isn't just about telling positive stories, right? It's not. And we resist the title Positive News for Solutions Journalism. Actually, the word solutions is not exactly the word we should be using. I think we're sort of stuck with the name now, but we should be calling it response to problems journalism because Oh, yeah, that's a lot catchier, (laughs) Tina. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be successful to be worth writing about. You can write solution stories about solutions that fail because it's interesting to learn from why something failed. You can write them about stories that are partially successful. And in fact, there is no such thing as a completely successful solution. And if you try and cover it that way, you'll have no credibility with your audience. So you have to cover what is not working about it. If this was initially conceived, at least in part, to combat compassion fatigue or to increase reader engagement, do you have any indication that it works? We do. Our first big project four years ago was with the Seattle Times. They were tired of reporting on how bad Seattle's public education system was, and they started a section called Education Lab, which in addition to their regular education coverage, their reporters did a package of stories every month 
on something that works in public education, Mm -hmm. sometimes from around Seattle, around the state of Washington, but even farther afield. So the American Press Institute did a study of how Education Lab stories were doing, and they found that time on page was 77% higher versus other education stories. Social shares were 230% higher. Wow. Page views were 35% higher. That is really impressive, and it does suggest that framing the stories in this particular way really does increase engagement. But do you have any examples of how your solutions journalism has actually had impact, something that uh, seems more and more out of reach these days? Let's stick with Seattle. For example, they did a series on school discipline. And one of the results that came directly out of that was the Seattle School Board put a halt to suspensions for elementary school students for a year. They did a story on a school in a low-income neighborhood that adopted an international baccalaureate program, and graduation rates and college-going rates soared. But that school had been set to close. The city saved the school. They did stories on truancy and... Then the state legislature passed a bill requiring all Washington school districts and juvenile courts to establish community truancy boards as a way to keep students in school and out of court. It makes sense that there's impact because if you can show that a problem isn't inevitable because someone is doing a better job, then that problem is no longer inevitable. Then it becomes inexcusable. I've noticed that a lot of the stories that you cite on your website, solutionsjournalism.org, begin someplace far away and talk about a solution. You know, Vietnam, for instance. Yeah, WWNO, which is New Orleans Public Radio Station, they were doing a series on how New Orleans was dealing with rising water levels. And they found that there were places in Vietnam which had exactly the same problem. In fact, it was the most comparable place, and they were dealing with it. So we helped them get to Vietnam by providing travel money and do a series of stories about that. But, I mean, obviously the economics of the news business mean that traveling for stories is very often not possible. And you do not have to travel for a solution story. The vast majority of the EdLab stories, for example, which is the Seattle Times series on public education, are found in what works inside the city of Seattle. And this year, the Chattanooga Times Free Press was a Pulitzer finalist for a solution series that we worked with them on called The Poverty Puzzle on people inside Chattanooga who were working to reduce poverty and increase social mobility. It was all local and None of them were succeeding. (laughs) I mean, some of them were having some success, but it's a really difficult problem. And the series showed that in all its glory. It was very, very successful, not only as great journalism, but it really changed the relationship of the city and the newspaper. The author of the series said people no longer perceived her as looking for what's wrong only and doing gotcha journalism, but they perceived her, oh, you care about our city. It's interesting. It seems very intuitive in a way. Why is it important to even name this solutions journalism? Well, we didn't invent the practice, but we put a name on it. We put together a system for doing it, teaching methods. It's very important, I think, to show journalists how they can do this with professional safety. What do you mean? The most fearless investigative reporters Reporters who will hold the most powerful people to account are terrified 
to do a solution story because they don't want to be seen as coming off like an advocate or doing PR. Within our profession, if you do a story about a problem and it turns out that you're wrong, you've committed a journalistic misdemeanor. But if you do a story about something that's working and it turns out you're wrong, that's a journalistic felony. And so it's really important to provide techniques for how journalists can do this. So tell me how you're doing it. For example, when you're out reporting, one question you should ask your sources is, who's doing a better job on this? That can often open up possible solution stories. When you're writing a story, you have to be very careful to include the limits of what you're covering. Put it in context in the sense of, This is one of several solutions and how it compares to others, more successful or less successful. You're really writing about the idea, and the particular program you're focusing on is just the narrative lens you're using. You're not really writing about that program. One reason why we were excited to talk to you about this is because the ether is so full of shiny objects that great reporters are running after often risking what's going on in the rest of the world, the bigger picture. It seems to me that your approach, solutions journalism, isn't just a possible route to a solution to any number of problems that we face, but it also offers a possible route to a solution to the problem of journalism in the third millennium. We think so. If we had started this 20 years ago, nobody would have paid us the slightest attention. But because of the economic crisis in journalism, journalists started listening to us because they're interested in trying something new. Now, journalism has an existential crisis to go with its economic crisis. (laughs) And part of that is how do we restore trust in journalism? And we think this is one way of doing it, of showing people that you aren't just searching for the pathologies, and what's wrong, but also looking for what people are doing to try and solve those problems. Tina, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Tina Rosenberg co-writes The Fixes column for The New York Times and is the co-founder of the Solutions Journalism Network. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Mira Sharma, Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, and Michael Lowinger. We had more help from Sara Kari, Leia Feder, and Kate Bakhtiarova. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. Jim Schachter is WNYC's vice president for news. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.